Competitive market conditions have led to the emergence of health plans with narrower provider networks. When patients can get adequate care within those networks, restrictions on provider choice can be a reasonable trade-off for lower premiums. But in some cases, patients have to go outside the network to receive adequate care, or they're treated by providers they don't choose, and then they can be faced with substantially higher out-of-pocket costs. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Mark Hall, a professor of law and director of the Health Law and Policy Program at Wake Forest University. Professor Hall has co-authored a perspective article about strategies for protecting patients from unfair out-of-network billing. Professor Hall, can you tell us a bit about the trend toward narrower provider networks? What's driving that shift? Sure. Well, it really emerged distinctively as a result of the Affordable Care Act in a way that many health policy analysts see as a favorable trend, although with some worrisome considerations. But the positive feature is really goes back to Alan Enthoven 40 years ago now saying that competition in health insurance should drive improved value in healthcare delivery if insurers compete based on differing networks of providers. And in the past, that hasn't happened to any great extent, but we saw that happening right off out of the starting gate with the exchange structure created under the ACA for the individual market. In your perspective article, you discuss two circumstances in which you see these high charges for out-of-network care as unfair. When the plans have inadequate networks, and when patients are treated by providers they don't choose, and then they're subjected to surprise billing. So who determines whether plans have adequate networks, and what are the limitations in that system? With regard to the network adequacy point, originally that had gotten a lot of attention, let's say in the 1980s when managed care plans first formed. And at that time, there were some narrower networks, and the state insurance regulators were principally in charge of determining network adequacy. The Trade Association for Insurance Commissioners, known as the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, set a model statute in place that a lot of states adopted the gist of. But then it became less of an issue as really PPOs came back into sort of the dominant position in the large group market and then HMO networks themselves got broader. And so there really wasn't much of a regulatory issue about network breadth, perhaps more under Medicaid managed care, but less so in the large employer-driven provider market. So ultimately, it does devolve to the state regulators, but then when the Affordable Care Act came along and created the exchanges, you had shared oversight because to participate in the premium tax subsidized insurance exchanges, you have to meet federal standards for health plan qualification. And so the federal standards uh, overlay state regulatory authority, and, and so you have that combined jurisdiction. Originally, the Obama administration had looked at setting up separate federal standards for these qualified health plans, but then essentially delegated that authority back to the states. And so it resides back with the states now, and states are taking a new look at this in view of the fact that the first set of regulations are a generation old, and it's time to update them. And what about surprise billing? In what circumstances are patients most likely to be exposed to these surprise bills, and how common is it? So that's really sort of the genesis of this article, is to see that the narrow network issue and network adequacy is linked to the surprise billing problem. And Typically, they're addressed to separate issues, but I think in the field, the rough and tumble of healthcare finance and delivery, they're seen, seen as linked, and regulators see them as linked. So this is a kind of first effort to see how the two resonate to each other. So the surprise billing scenario is patients, despite their best efforts to stay in-network, end up getting an out-of-network bill, and that's classically for a couple of reasons. One is emergency situations where they don't have time to think about it. The second is they go to an in-network facility with an in-network 
principal physician, a surgeon, or an internal medicine doctor, but then specialists or adjunct ancillary physicians who are brought in might be out of network. So it could be your anesthesiologist for surgery or the assistant surgeon or the pathologist or the radiologist, those sorts of things. Because each specialist and each facility negotiates themselves, there's no requirement that they all sign up for the same plans. And so it's easy to find yourself in this unfair situation of patient having used best efforts to stay in network, still getting an out-of-network bill. You talk in your article about two Senate proposals from last fall that were aimed at solving the surprise billing problem. What were the ideas behind those proposals, and are they likely to move forward in the new Congress? There seems to be pretty good momentum for some potentially even bipartisan legislation addressing this, the surprise billing problem. The pending proposals, I think, sort of lay out a couple of different approaches. One is to set potentially a maximum payment amount that could be charged out-of-network in these unfair out-of-network situations and pegging that to either negotiated market rates or to Medicare as a percentage of Medicare or as a upper end of what negotiated rates are. That raises the prospect potentially of overt rate regulation of physicians' prices, which is anathema to a number of people. And so another approach is to duck the rate regulation issue and instead create a dispute resolution mechanism where in these unfair out-of-network billing situations, you at least hold the patient harmless as not having to pay the extra deductible and balanced bill, but then you need a mechanism to decide how much the health plan needs to pay or how much the ultimately the provider can charge. And so the other approach is to create an efficient dispute resolution mechanism where that payment dispute is resolved through arbitration. So what are the barriers to that kind of approach? Is it politically feasible either at the state level or the federal level? A number of states have done one or both or a combined approach but the limitation there is ERISA raises its ugly head and bar states from requiring that of self-funded private employers, which accounts for over half of the privately insured market. Perhaps private employers could opt into that kind of system voluntarily, but it couldn't be mandated by the state, which seems to call for a federal approach. Another reason for a federal approach is a little squirrely issue of air ambulance billing. So some of the largest out-of-network billing comes from air ambulances that charge tens of thousands of dollars for a trip. And because of aviation regulation at the federal level, states can't regulate that little piece of the problem either. So we've talked about two different problems that are facing patients. How do you see them as being linked? The link is this, that if you allow narrow networks to go forward, there's more potential for surprise billing. But if you have protections against surprise billing that are too, I suppose, protective, only that insist on the lowest possible uh, reimbursement, then you have less incentive to negotiate network membership. So there's spillover effects between the two sets of regulations. And so I think having both issues in mind at the same time is important from a policy point of view, but also from a solution point of view, there's difficulty on the network adequacy side specifying an exact quantity of physicians spaced an exact distance. You can't have a Noah's Ark for providers within 20 minutes of every patient. So there has to be some leeway for flexibility and what is adequate. But similarly, on the price billing side, there's reluctance to specify an exact payment amount. So both regulatory problems seem to call for a more nuanced or flexible approach, which I think can be found in this idea of streamlined arbitration. So the core idea of the article is to use streamlined arbitration both for the surprise billing problem and for the problem of gaps in the network. Finally, while we're waiting for policy solutions to these problems, is there anything that individual physicians can do to help ensure that their patients receive adequate care but aren't faced with these potentially really high out-of-pocket costs? 
Well, I think the primary physician, the, not primary care necessarily, but the, the one the physician in charge of the case, needs to be aware of the potential for out-of-network billing and do what's feasible to their office staff to make sure that the physicians they bring into the case to refer, if they're not part of the network, will at least accept network reimbursement for that particular case. So that's one thing that I think would be helpful to do, and whether physicians or staff to do that is, uh, I think, uh, a difficulty. Also, when patients find themselves unavoidably going out of network because network physicians aren't available, they've looked and they can't get appointments or they're too far away, it's quite possible to bring a, essentially a challenge to the health plan's network adequacy, and that gets resolved in part based on medical criteria. Does the patient need the care right away, or can they wait a few weeks? Is it something that generalists can deal with, or do they need to see the subspecialist? And so those medical questions are informed by, greatly influenced, I think, by the opinions of the primary treating physicians. And so assisting patients with bringing those challenges, I think, is another important role. Thank you, Professor Hall.